Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we will be looking at the poem I Sit and Sew by Alice Dunbar Nelson. Alice Dunbar Nelson was born in 1875. She was the daughter of an African-American seamstress who herself was a former slave and then her father was a white sailor. She grew up in New Orleans. She was educated at Strait University in 1890. Uh, Strait University was a, was a, a college for gifted coloured students to use the parlance of the time. And it's now, I think, Delaware State College is the name of it now. Um, she's often associated with the Harlem Renaissance, which is, of course, the flourishing of creativity and artistry from African-Americans that followed a sort of movement that the, the population um, of Harlem with lots of African-American people, many of them coming from the South. So she was a, she was part of the Harlem Renaissance of poets, even though she didn't really, you know, she wasn't really part of Harlem she didn't really uh, you know she seemed to have spent most of her time in Delaware and uh, she was from New Orleans um, she spent a bit of time with, in Washington as well with her first marriage to another poet associated with a Harlem Renaissance Paul Lawrence Dunbar so which was a short marriage of four years and a marriage that uh, started off seemed to start off well but but due to many factors became um, i'm guessing well not no, don't need to guess at all it was it was an absolute nightmare they had a almost a bit like um the brownings they had a two-year correspondence but unlike um, elizabeth barrett browning and robert browning who after their correspondence came together and had a very much blissful marriage and were remained in love for the rest of their days things did not end so well for Lawrence uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Alice Dunbar who she was actually her name at the time was Alice Moore that's a maiden name um partially so so he became quite struck with her appearance um at Alice Alice Dunbar Nelson you see she had different names throughout her life so I'm going to get a bit confused in this biographical thing so I'm just going to call her the name that I find her you know when you look her up you find Alice Dunbar Nelson now those are her two married names Dunbar and Nelson and then more is sometimes added as well but I'm just going to stick with Alice Dunbar Nelson so so Paul Dunbar sort of became that I can't remember how the correspondence started but I know that at some point he became very stricken with her physical appearance um she was a mixed race and she was what they would have called at the time white passing. So in certain situations, she could have passed herself off as a white woman and people might not have noticed. This is one dynamic in that relationship. So that already caused frustration um, in the sense within this marriage, in the sense that um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar was not white passing. So that you could say there are times when she could have been treated differently. She could have walked into certain places that he wouldn't have been able to walk into. So that seems to be one cause of tension, which is an, an understandable cause of tension, not an understandable reason for him to be cruel to her. But I can imagine that causing terrible tension within a relationship, those outside factors of racism. Now, the other issues um, that affected their marriage was also um, that uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who was, as I said, a poet and writer in his own right and playwright, he um, he had tuberculosis, which was a, a terrible illness, which eventually killed him. 
So that was bad enough that he was struck by this terrible illness, but part of the treatment for the illness, in fact, part of what he was prescribed by his doctor, his doctor prescribed him whiskey to aid the symptoms of tuberculosis. So already it's a terrible, painful disease that luckily we can inoculate ourselves against nowadays. But that on top of, he became, obviously, he became an alcoholic. He was always intoxicated and he physically... Um, abused his wife all of the time their marriage ended when she had to finally check she was beaten up so badly she had to go to hospital they separated after that she went back to delaware he died not long after that um, from things related to his tuberculosis so it is very sad in the sense that he um became an alcoholic because he was advised to become one i guess by his doctor so everything just sounds terrible about that um, I'll talk about another thing that might have added tension to those marriages, that marriage as well, but we'll talk about her other marriages. Um, she married, I think for about four months, a fellow teacher called Henry A. Callis. I think he was a lot younger than her as well. That was in 1910, but that lasted months. And then, um, she finally married Robert A. Nelson, who um, was a journalist and a civil rights advocate. I think that was in 1918. And that seemed to be quite a... Well, well, that, that lasted for the rest of her days. She died in 1935 at the age of 60. So it seemed a very stable relationship and they did plenty of things together. And then near the end of her life, she got much more. So a lot of her life she was teaching. She was still writing poetry. She was releasing books here and there, but she felt she wasn't a very successful writer. And then near the end of her life, um, in, well, sort of in the sort of 1920s, the 19-teens and the 1920s at least, and the 1930s, she became much more politically active. Um, I guess circumstances allowed her to a certain point, and I think she really came into her own, especially as a journalist and um, a sort of a political campaigner. And so she campaigned for the rights of women. She campaigned for the rights of black people. She campaigned for racial equality. Campaigned for racial equality, and I think she felt quite frustrated earlier in her life mainly because as a black woman, she wasn't really able... I mean, black women weren't, were not often expected to not even work outside the home, so to not be kind of seen out and about even. Um, her life was very restricted, so to just be outwardly political and to, to be involved in the things that she seemed to be able to be involved in later on in her life, um, it wasn't necessarily something she could do earlier in her life, and I think we see that reflected in, in this poem. Um, another thing, right, about Alice... Dunbar Nelson is that another pressure that seemed to affect all of her marriages is that she didn't according to her journals at least we know that she kept on having affairs with women so quite kind of passionate very sexual relationships with women so in in some ways I so there's there's some argument or I found some sort of scholarly argument online about the nat what was her nature was she a closeted well she was a closeted gay woman because obviously she wasn't out as a bisexual woman but um was she maybe a a, a a completely gay woman who married these men I don't know I don't know did she have love affairs of these men um, I'm not sure. It seemed like she, so other people say she did. She said that she had genuine kind of 
genuine affairs with his men but while she was with these sort of more stable relationships with his men she had lots of other little relationships with women that was definitely meant to be the cause of tension between her and Paul Dunbar but with Robert A. Nelson it seemed to be from what I read it was a cause of tension at the beginning of their marriage and then Robert A. Nelson just went oh all right then <laughs> and she, she was yay and um yeah so, so he seemed to just tolerate it he just seemed to be okay that's what she that's what she does fair enough it's women i don't know i can't get into anyone's head in that situation but i find it a really interesting situation and it adds a lot to her as as to how we see her as a person as well um there's a fantastic excerpt from one of her journals which i'll, I'll, I'll bring out now um this is from a website timeline.com so it's slightly ex excerpted here but she speaks of um narca who was narca lee rayford who we she worked with as part of the national federation of colored women but so this diary entry writes narca comes to the house for comfort we want to make whoopee life is glorious good homemade white grape wine we really make whoopee so that's what she wrote on um, August the 1st, 1928. So that would have been 10 years into her, into her marriage to Robert A. Nelson. I love that. I just love the whole, we want to make whoopee. Life is glorious. Good homemade white grape wine. We really make whoopee. Um, if there's anyone listening who might not understand what whoopee means, it means they, um, if you can't guess, then I'll just tell you that they um, sewed together some whoopee cushions. You know, those are the cushions that, that make farting noises when you sit on them nothing more than that nothing more than that i promise if you, if you haven't worked out what it is then 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 that is what it is so anyway so i i love it i just love that diary entry it, it's also it kind of i mean I, I, her poetry there's certainly the sense of her personality in her poetry but there's, there's this real sense of mischievousness and fun just within that diary entry as well so a lot of I have not read loads of her poetry. I read a few of her poems. And in fact, I started off reading the poems before I read her biography. I didn't really know much about her until I was researching this week, looking for someone. And there she was. So um, the poems are quite interesting because they seem you would not guess these little details from her life from some of the poems I've written, written, read anyway. So there's one called The Idler, which which is quite an interesting poem about actually, well, at the end of the day, we all die. And what's the difference between the person who's worked for everything and this idler? We're both even in that final moment when everything slips away. And so there's a certain helplessness and restlessness that I've read in some of those poems. And that's something I definitely read in this poem that we're looking at today. I sit and sew. So I'll read that in a second. I think I've given enough biographical information. Um, one other little thing, actually, we're talking about the voice of her poems. Another tension between her and Paul Dunbar was that he liked to write in the vernacular. So sort of a lot of his lighter poems especially were written in sort of African-American vernacular. But hers were written in a more of a kind of, well, she, she sounds in some ways like a, like a, a Victorian poet, you could say the sort of rhyming and you find that with a lot of black art movement poets as well they write in sort of formal poetry and so many of them write in this sort of higher register this heightened speech that you could find in victorian poets or in the romantic poets i think i'll talk a little bit about why most of them chose that way when we after we look at the poem but for now i'm going to read the poem i sit and sew by alice dunbar nelson i sit and sew a useless task, it seems. My hands grown tired, my head weighed down with dreams. The panoply of war, the martial tread of men. 
grim-faced, stern-eyed, gazing beyond the ken of lesser souls whose eyes have not seen death, nor learned to hold their lives but as a breath. But I must sit and sow. I sit and sow, my heart aches with desire, that pageant terrible, that fiercely pouring fire on wasted fields and writhing grotesque things once men, my soul in pity flings, appealing cries yearning only to go, there in that holocaust of hell, those fields of woe, but I must sit and sow. The little useless seam, the idle patch, why dream I here beneath my homely thatch, when there they lie in sodden mud and rain, pitifully calling me the quick ones and the slain? You need me, Christ. It is no roseate dream that beckons me, this pretty, futile seam. It stifles me. God, must I sit and sew? So that was I Sit and Sew by Alice Dunbar Nelson. So the, the the meaning of the poem is, is pretty simple. This is a person, a woman, who is sewing. There appears, it seems to be written at a time of war. She is haunted by images of conflict and the knowledge that somewhere, the knowledge that somewhere out there, terrible things are happening and she must sit and sew and that she has no power. She has no power to do anything. She has no no power to help. She has no power to get involved in the thick of action, but she just sits there and sews. So that really is that really is a lot of the meaning of the poem. A few little lines might might strike out at you. Um, the panoply of war, the martial tread of men, grim-faced, stern-eyed, gazing beyond the ken of lesser souls whose eyes have not seen death, nor learned to hold their lives but as a breath. That was a line that tripped me up a little bit at first. Not learn to hold their lives, but as a breath. So, one thing I can sort of hazard from that line, but learn not learn to hold their lives, but as a breath. So she's comparing herself. She's comparing herself and all the people of peacetime with the soldiers. So the soldiers are the ones whose eyes have not seen death, but the soldiers are the ones who also... Um, hold their lives but as a breath obviously the the fleet you know if we think of anything that's fleeting breath breath is extremely fleeting in one end out the other and keep on going but also the lightness of breath and yes obviously you know our lives uh come from our breath our breathing we stop breathing we die unless uh some piece of machinery does our breathing for us so so it's this simple reducible thing isn't it the very essence the vitality of our life comes from our breathing but uh someone who perhaps has seen death someone who's been in battle perhaps they see life as nothing more than breath the, the you know the lightness of their lives the sort of the, the the fleetingness of their life and and how their life in in some ways is not seen as valuable so so to say sort of life is saying, seeing life as nothing more than breath is to say that their life has been stripped down of all of its meaning of all of its stories and that really has been whittled down to the idea of breath these sort of men of action they 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 they, they haven't got time to maybe sort of struggle with these questions of identity um, of who they are of what they should be doing you know this is about staying alive and i guess having some kind of ultimate trust in the authority that's commanding them so um there's other lines as well i sit and sew so so every stanza begins 
with 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 the word with well the first two stanzas begin with the line i sit and sew um the phrase sit and sew also ends each stanza as well in fact the you know i sit and sew begins each line for the first two stanzas and then it, each of those first two stanzas also has the exact identical line but i must sit and sew so it's almost like she begins with sitting and sewing has this reverie almost of thinking of what's going on beyond her and her powerlessness to do anything then she has to remind herself but i must sit and sew and then we start again i sit and sew she has this reverie again and also again but i must sit and sew but things change she almost interrogates the thing that's before her so rather than thinking of sitting and sewing in the action and reminding herself to do the action she instead almost she confronts this useless scene this idle patch the thing that is finally before her rather than have it being torn between her actions and her desire her actions and her will her actions and her moral sense of obligation um she instead examines in the final stanza this this what she's actually doing and right before is this useless scene the idle patch uh why dream i here beneath my homely thatch where there they lie in sodden mud and rain pitifully calling me the quick ones and the slain so the quick ones and the slain that comes from the king james bible the term that that, that christ will judge um, a phrase the idiom that christ will judge for quick and the dead alike so people this has been used in that punning sense there's a sam raimi film isn't there called the quick and the dead with sharon stone russell crowe leo dicaprio and lance henriksen and is it gene hackman as well i think it is gene hackman isn't it and um but it's a cowboy film and it's about you know basically a competition where everyone has to you know it's a dual competition so obviously the quick and the dead comes from that but of course they don't really mean quick as in oh you've got to move around or you'll die in the king james at least it means um, the quick comes from a sort of an archaic use of the term quick which is to mean alive and um, one particular phrase that, that uses quick is, is a term called the quickening and the quickening is the moment that someone is pregnant feels the baby moving within their womb for the first time that's called the quickening almost as in that's the first recognition of the life of something else from the outside world the quickening so that's what i mean by the quick and the dead um this is no roseate dream roseate literally is rose rose tinted rose rose colored that beckons me this this pretty futile seam it stifles me god must i sit and sew so that's so the third stanza has that slight slight difference once where it doesn't begin with i sit and so she says this useless little useless seam and then she repeats that it's a pretty futile seam before god it stifles me god must i sit and so so while she does end it with sit and so it's more like a question you know and what we one thing we get i think the repetition within the poem echoes the repetition of that action you know there's a sort of loop through the thread pull loop through the thread pull this idea of sewing and doing the same thing again and again the repetition is found there in the poem but there's a sort of break at the end of the poem in the repetition where while she still says sit and sew it's said in a completely different way and she doesn't say i sit and sew at the beginning of that final stanza she sort of confronts the thing before her which is this seam and the seam seems to be more than just a little seam doesn't it the seam of two things that are being held together almost her saying that no actually the circumstances of my life 
aren't natural. The person that I am and the place that I am in shouldn't be held together, stitched together like this. You know, they, they should be allowed to fly apart. So that's what I wonder, what, you know, because when she says this useless, little useless seam, the idle patch. So she does seem to identify the seam itself of her situation. And the seam is, of course, two things which have been brought together as one that, 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 that can be split apart again without too much effort as well. So I do wonder if that is kind of the, the, the core, part of the core of the meaning of that. Now, she also talks about desire and being held in by desire. And again, maybe we think about the affairs that she had with all these women while married and still having to sort of play the part of the faithful doting wife. I don't know how much she played the part in life or not, but it seems that she presented a different public image in that aspect than she did in the private self and the private life that is revealed in her journals. Um, yeah. One thing about, so the form of the poem. So um, it rhymes. It's written in it mainly in iambic pentameter. It uses rhyming couplets and they're seven line stanzas so normally the middle stanza is actually the final three lines rhyme with each other but normally so also it sort of echoes the first when i sit and so is said it doesn't rhyme with any previous lines but it does sort of echo the opening words of the stanza so it brings in that balance so while it could sound strange to hear a stanza of a poem where it rhymes until the last line, even though the last line is the the name of the poem. Normally you'd think it would rhyme with something else in the poem in order to give that sense of completeness. Otherwise it, it feels quite strange. Well, it does give that sense of completeness because of the opening line and because I sit and so is said at the beginning of a line. So apart from the last one, of course, so that we're kind of expecting it half, you know, it still feels like it's tying it up in a little knot, but it, in a way it doesn't tie it up in a little knot at the end of the poem because again the she calls it she says this useless little seam rather than i sit and so followed by a massive gorgeous m dash and then the rest of the lines so that is a that is well that's so again that i think the form and the content echo each other very well um the repetition repetition no i can't quite repeat this you know it's almost like a short circuit at the end of the poem so it's formal and quite traditional in the sense that it is five stress lines, iambic pentameter, that Shakespearean conversational way of writing a line of poetry. Um, but at the same time, it does, yes, it has little tricks hidden within the form. In that sense, it's quite, well, the Romantics and the Victorians are ones who revisited form but would often play little games with the form as well at the same time. And so when we look at um, poets such as Langston Hughes and... Alice Dunbar Nelson and Claude Mackay, who we looked at in an earlier episode of Rusty Sonnets when we looked at a poem um, where he kind of echoes Shelley in Harlem. And um, and a lot of these poems, you can sort of see the influences of Victorian and Romantic poets, often Romantic poets. Now, at the same time, around the time of the sort of 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, um, the other great artistic movements were modernism and modernism in poetry. You know, we have Ezra Pound saying that he had to break the pentameter and also T.S. Eliot's. We also have the imagist poets writing prose poems or like Amy Lowell and then um, William Carlos Williams as well and E.E. E. Cummings. But modernism has all these people breaking these rules. But at the same time, 
Now, it's not to say they didn't experiment. I mean, the whole thing about reading poetry with a jazz band backing, a lot of that came from artists like Langston Hughes. So there were certain multimedia aspects of experimentation within Harlem Renaissance poets. But the, the poetry itself is quite formal. And I, I, we, this is hot take territory, really, even though I'm not wandering off on one yet. Um, I do wonder why, because when we look at the later arts movements, especially around Harlem, like the black art movement, the black art movement is incredibly aggressively avant-garde. Writing poetry that's very challenging that's stylistically, that has this very angry tone as well sometimes. It's kind of wild and angry and challenging and very intellectual as well at the same time. Whereas the Harlem Renaissance is very much writing these poems that are very um, inclusive, um, very dignified in tone and um, very, I don't know, just very um, formal as well. So quite, in that sense, old-fashioned. And I do wonder that maybe as one of the first major African-American um, or Western black art movements, I don't know if they could have done that whole Pablo Picasso thing. I don't know if they could have held that all-guns-blazing modernism thing. Why do I say this? I think one reason why is because we saw this with the Nazis when they when they um, framed modern art as degenerate art. And so there was a mindset of looking at the experimentation and the rule-breaking of modernism and saying that this was a, a sign of uh, degeneracy. Now, I'm not sure... That said, I hear that Americans were very into modernism, but I do wonder if one reason why it could be that... Well, I've got a couple of reasons why. Firstly... Normally, when we find populist art movements, there's something that Derek Walcott said about so the the the, the, um, Car the Caribbean poet and Nobel laureate Derek Walcott. I think he was in conversation with another Caribbean poet, Christian Campbell. It's a video I saw online, and he said that um, he's speaking about rap music, and he sort of said, "Isn't it interesting that when the revolution came, talking about rap." it was the rhyming couplet again. And the earliest rap music certainly has more of a rhyming couplet quality rather than the sort of more threaded internal rhyme of the rap music of today. And so I think there's just something that whenever these popular movements break out, it was different with a black art movement, but there are other kind of socially progressive movements that always seem to make, make, make use of the rhyming couplet almost as if it's something primal within human conditions. And if you want to speak to the people, especially if you want to speak to the general populace and not some intellectual or academic elite, then in poetry, the rhyming couplet seems to serve quite well in that sense. And I wonder if, if that's why it keeps making a comeback. It's just too innate within the human existence. So Harlem Renaissance was very much more... Um, again, broad brushstrokes here, but the Harlem Renaissance was more of a civil rights movement and the black art movement. So Mary Baraka, Sonia Sanchez, other poets and people like Gil Scott Heron were related to it. And the last poets were much more about autonomy of black people, autonomy of black artists. So there was more of a sort of up yours buddy 
quality to that work and so making it more like avant-garde jazz almost that, that you know having that screaming quality to it it's almost saying to a certain subset we don't want to include you anymore this is for us but that wasn't quite the tone of the Harlem Renaissance so I think that's one theory I have as to why the Harlem Renaissance chose that path it's it was still a people's movement and it wanted to speak to everyone but the other aspect is maybe that modernism wasn't necessarily still held as the kind of high barometer in society by most people it would have been perhaps poets such as Keats and Shelley or whoever and maybe the Harlem Renaissance poets wrote in that way to show look this is your this is your zenith of human culture this is your great these are your greatest poets we write in the same voices as your greatest most exalted poets and maybe that was a way of saying that as well. Again, the inclusiveness, the civil rights, the equality aspect of the Harlem Renaissance. Maybe it was more of a sense of that, that we speak in this voice because this is the voice you recognize your greatest cultural instigators writing in. We can speak in that voice too. Yeah, it's an interesting poem. I don't know how much from her biography that she really wanted to be out there. I don't know if it was more that the soldiers... I mean, she certainly became more active in her career. And so she, yeah, she she just became more active as a civil rights advocate later on when she was able to. And when um, I think also as a journalist as well, and with her, with Robert A. Nelson, they were kind of able to both collaborate in that sense. It's an interesting poem. Does she really want to be there in the fields? Or is this more just something, the futility of sowing the fact that she was being held back? And that was the thing that she reached for, the image of having an effect in the world i don't know i mean the poem was published i think in 1920 i really looked around and it appears that it first appeared in print in 1920 but it might have been written well a few years before probably when the when the first world war the great war was happening and she was hearing stories about it and maybe that's it as well i think i'm done talking about the poem now so i think now is the time to call upon the great man himself because I feel that I am now naturally veering away from the academic considerations of the poem that we're looking at. And I think it's time for me to wander off on one, which is, of course, is an acronym of woo. And no one says woo better than this guy. Thank you, Ric Flair. I wanted to talk about two things, actually. The first thing this poem made me think about was the helplessness of something that is happening out there in the world and carrying on doing what you do even though you feel that what you are doing does nothing to help or remedy or change that situation and this was written in a time when there weren't many ways of affecting these situations although perhaps news was traveling a lot faster than it used to perhaps the wireless radio around this time for example you know whereas um alfred lord tennyson wrote the charge of a light brigade he was very angry about the um, massacre of the Light Brigade. But he wrote that a week after it happened, because that's how long it took the news to find him. <laughs> you know, so, and then he wrote the poem, um, because that's when it appeared in the Times of London, this military blunder. So I don't know how quickly news was arriving um, with Alice Dunbar Nelson, but now we live in a time when news arrives very quickly and we can get notified on our phones and everything like that. And so we are more than ever bombarded with a narrative about what's going on in the world. And in return, we are confronted by our own uselessness because all we can do is vote every few years. Um, and now some of us, we go and protest. 
right now outside Parliament. There are people who want Brexit and there are people who don't want Brexit. And they're all shouting and they're all angry and they're all waving flags of one form or another. And um, and so that's one way of doing things. But how can they read? But it's really strange it's that like if I turn on news, it just tends to be Parliament, Parliament, Parliament right now. And it's very easy to get sucked into that 24 hour news cycle, but not being able to do much about it. And of course, where do we normally go when this happens? We go to social media and we start having big old wordy wars with other people on social media or we say something to our echo chamber and our echo chamber applauds us. So what I'm saying is, is I think in a historic context, and I think in saying this, I am, of course, not I am, of course, being a bit too flippant, I think. I was about to say there's ways in which I ways in which I envy her. I envy the fact that my uselessness is um the use you know, the, the, the my inability to change things. Um it seemed a bit more definite back in those days. But of course the bloody difference is, is this is a an African American woman, a, a, a bisexual African American woman, a woman who's being held back in nearly every aspect of her character within the social life of situations. I can't imagine what it would feel like to actually sit there and bloody sew something while all that you know, while the world is burning in that particular sense. Um so really how can I say I envy that? I can't. It's a stupid thing to say. But what I mean is, is that we are, mm, I'll tell you what it is. Things happen, we don't have any control over them, but we are made to feel like we can have some control over them. But the people that ultimately benefit from them are advertisers, data harvesters, and our broadband suppliers. And that's pretty much it. And I think, I think the people that, you know, we might benefit our causes a little bit, but ultimately all this is just a ton of effort, a ton of noise and fury. And um, and ultimately, we can't reach the things that we need to change. Of course, that's not always entirely true. There are things we can do, we, things we can change. But I think we're always at some point going to be confronted with that sense of futility. And uh, many times there will be a truth to that sense of futility. I, I, I feel myself, I'm almost debating myself in my head already when I'm saying that. Anyway, if you're still with me, thank you for listening. Thank you, everyone who listens to the podcast. Thank you to everyone who shares the podcast. Uh, thank you to everyone who reviews the podcast in whichever way you can review it, being iTunes. I think you can on Spotify. Hey, if you're listening on SoundCloud and you're able to click a little heart, if you're still listening, you know, your little I like it or subscribe, that would be nice as well. But if you can do anything, you know, if you, if you can do anything to share the podcast, get it out there, get it growing, that would be fantastic if you have enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed this one. I've always enjoyed it. And finally, if you don't have any of those means of getting a podcast out to people, you can always tell people in your face-to-face -face daily human contact that you listen to this. It's quite good. You reckon they might enjoy it too. Um, and that's it really. So I hope you found that an enjoyable podcast. It's quite a strange one for me. I felt quite strange in moments doing that podcast. But anyway, other than that, thank you very much. Have a good one. See you next time. Bye-bye.